we didn't have inflation in financial crisis time. We didn't have inflation during the pandemic. Nobody's dealt with this type of inflation before and in trying to make ends meet. That's why they're all pissed off. You know, I can just see the surveyors calling up people and it's like, uh, hey, Adam, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm with the University of Michigan. How are you feeling about the, the, the economy? Hey, F you. Right. <laughs> you know? Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back for another weekly market recap with my good friend Lance Roberts after a heck of a week. How are you doing, Lance? Um, I'm actually doing okay. Um, it's it's been an interesting week, you know, uh, kind of really across the board. But uh, you know, it's it, it's kind of interesting to see where we are because now we're talking, you know, about this inflationary number that came out today, of course, that spooked the markets because potentially more Fed rate hikes. But again, and we'll talk more about this today, we're still seeing the peak of inflation. And though it doesn't look that way right now, but we're still seeing all the indications that we're probably seeing the peak of inflation occur as we speak. All right. All great points, Lance. And I want to dig into the demand destruction that you're talking about there. Uh, lots of evidence there that that indeed is coming. Uh, I do, though, want to very quickly just focus on the data that you mentioned. Um, this morning, the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics released the latest consumer price index for May, and it went up to uh, 8.5 something, which is rounded up to 8.6. So that actually does make it the highest in the series since the beginning of last year. Uh, I think it's the highest in the past 41 years since 1981, they're saying. So um, real quick, you and I have talked on this program for the past couple months that, that we think that in, the CPI is peaking out likely and likely to come down as the year progresses. That's for a variety of reasons, including the demand destruction we're about to talk about, but also just the way in which the CPI is calculated. Uh, the comparison to last year gets harder the further we go into 2022 because inflation was rising throughout last year. Um, but I do just want to a note that you know we sort of stuck our necks out and said we think that that April was the high. Well, it turns out it was, or sorry, that March was the high. Turns out it looks like it wasn't. There's a new high, but it's just by a little bit, um, largely driven by what's happening right now with with oil prices. Um, so, uh, anyways, long story short. If we don't call it exactly right, we obviously will let you folks know. But also, and it's worth maybe talking about here for a quick second, Lance, um, it's not ex that much higher. I mean, we're talking about 8.5 low to 8.5 high. And, you know, I think you mentioned this before we started recording here that, you know, peaks don't necessarily happen all at once. You get a, a little bit of chop at the top. So, you know, I think I think to the spirit of what we're saying, jury's still out. Well, and too, and, and it's interesting because everybody's pointing at oil prices like, well, we have inflation because of oil prices. Actually, when you're talking about CPI, it's really not oil prices. Energy as a function of the CPI calculation is a very small percentage of CPI. What's really drives CPI is food, which makes up about 15, 16% of the index and homeowners equivalent rent, which is housing. That's over 40% of the index calculation. So, it's, you know, those two components are so large, they make up more than half of the of the CPI calculation. And interestingly enough, what's happening, of course, is with housing, that housing data that is used in the CPI calculation is on a lag. And if we take a look at, at what's going on, kind of boots on the ground, real-time housing data, you know, uh, the number of showings that Redfin calculates 
the number of mortgage application, uh, the number of realtor, uh, homeowners that are lowering the selling prices on their houses, et cetera. That's all telling us that there's already a peak in, in what's happening in real estate. And that's going to feed through in the next month or two. Uh, we'll start to see that show up in the housing data. So, so oil and gas prices can go up and you still see inflation come down because of just the, the magnitude of housing and food relative to the overall index. You know, I calculate um, every time we have this, you know, kind of run through inflation and we have these reports, always go back and I calculate the, the core, core CPI, which came actually, core CPI was in line with estimates. It was the headline CPI that was, that was above. And, um, but also calculated X, uh, healthcare and housing. And the reason I strip out healthcare and housing is, is, as we talked about before here on the show, is that those costs are mostly fixed for, for most people, right? You don't go out and buy a house every month. You don't go out and buy a, an apartment every month, right? You know, our mortgage is fixed. Our rent is fixed on a contractual basis for at least 12 months. If I'm renting an apartment, I'm renting it for nine or 12 months. So I've got a, a fixed rent for at least that period of time. Healthcare, a lot of people, we get it through either the government healthcare program or we get it through our, our employer. That cost is also pretty fixed relative to, you know, what we spend out, depends on how often we get sick and that type of stuff. But, you know, those costs are fairly fixed. So if we strip those costs out, the actual inflation for homeowners, now this is, you know, for the average American, the actual inflation for the average American, now this is, this is where we see this demand destruction really going to start to show up it's over 11.5% right now. And that is food and gas and oil and apparel and these type of things. That's what people pay for every week, every month, every quarter. And that's where they're seeing all those savings really being sapped out the back end. And again, this is going to lead to demand destruction uh, as we get further into the year. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of things off of that. First off, for folks that want to deep dive into sort of how the housing market is sort of in a rapid cooling phase right now, way faster than folks were expecting. Uh, I just recorded a great discussion with that with housing analyst Nick uh, Jurley. Uh, you can you can see that here. I'll put up a link to it right here. Um, on the energy side of things, I just recorded a discussion with um, oil expert Art Berman that'll be coming on this channel next week. Um, but we talked a lot about where oil prices are headed from here. And Art uh, goes through a parade of data uh, that I won't summarize here. You can watch the video when it comes out, but basically says the, the high likelihood from here is that we are going to see oil prices moderate later this year. Um, and I won't get into all the exact reasons why, but basically, you know, expert in the field says that, hey, you know, just like what happens with a lot of other uh, Goods and, goods and services when, when inflation gets as high as it, as it does now. It's kind of your motto there, Lance, that high prices fix high prices, right? People just start lose, using less. You get the organic demand destruction that you're talking about. There's a couple other factors that may bring oil down as well. So to your point, the things that are propping up uh, the CPI right now, um, we, can, we can already sort of see good um, empirically based arguments that those things are going to moderate going forward. Now, to be real clear, folks, neither Lance or I are saying that, you know, in, prices are going to come down tomorrow and everything's going to be a bargain. Um, we're probably going to be living with elevated prices for a good long time. 
but they will the rate of increase of those prices is likely to start decreasing as we move on from here that's actually called disinflation so if you hear lance and i talk about disinflation in future videos that's really what we're going to be talking about here um so lance uh on the demand destruction side we've really got two things going on here and i just want to make sure people really understand this We've got the organic demand destruction that I just mentioned, right? Which is that prices get so high that consumers say, uh, you know what, I'm just not gonna drive as much. I'm gonna downshift my spending at the grocery store to cheaper products, right? Consumer prices get so high that consumer behavior changes. Maybe consumers can even just physically afford to spend less, right? Because they're, they're, you know, they, they've just got less left over when their paycheck, you know, gets cashed. Um, so that's has a you know cyclical element to it and we are probably at the part of the cycle where people are going to start tightening their pocketbooks at the same time though you've got the federal reserve out there that is trying to dampen demand so they are actually pursuing policies that are going to make you the consumer feel less wealthy even more less wealthy than you feel right now so that you constrain their spending and that companies don't make quite as much and that um you know the demand that's out there pushing prices up starts to moderate right so you know when we talk about this demand destruction i just want folks to know that it's not like we're kind of guessing that yeah maybe it may happen we've got two really powerful forces that are working at this and i don't see anything short of like true supply shortages that really could prevent that from happening over the next you know six to, to 12 months do you no and, and that's no it's absolutely right and look there's kind of several things that are going on as you were talking i was you know kind of these things were triggering in my head that I, that we need to address one is janet yellen's comments about inflation that she made earlier this week you know how this woman is in charge of the sec you know, being a treasury secretary and be so ignorant of economics is absolutely beyond me scary by the way but truly truly astonishing how wrong she can be so often, but you know, uh, we'll get into that here in a second. But to, to your point, you know, as you talk about you know rising inflation, the key factor we're talking about here, and, and you mentioned this, you know, in your in passing, you mentioned wages, and that's such a key component of this entire discussion because wages are not keeping up with the rate of inflation. And if you look at, at what's happening with wage growth relative to what's going on with inflationary pressures in the economy, particularly with food and gas and things that people spend money on every week, there is a massive gap that's opening up between prices and wages. And that simply leads to the fact that, to your point, consumers have to start making a decision. Where do I spend money? Well, right now, they're all turning back to their credit cards. During 2020, 2021, we had a massive decrease in the amount of, of revolving credit because we sent money to households and people, hey, people made some smart decisions. They go, oh, free money. I'm going to pay off that credit card that's been nagging at me for the last you know, 20 years. I'm going to pay off that, that, pay, that bill finally. And so we saw people do that. We saw revolving credit come down. Now, just in the last two months, and, and really it started a few months ago, but really accelerating these last two months, as inflation creeped up and as the last of that you know, essence of liquidity that was put into the system from unemployment benefits, expanded child tax credits, all this other stuff. As that finally ran out, people had to go back to those credit cards to make ends meet. We had a $55 billion increase in revolving credit 
in March, another 35 billion, I'm sorry, in April, and another 35 billion in, in May. I mean, this has been a massive ramp up and people going back to credit cards. Now, the only reason, and, and I love these headlines that come out in the media, they go, well, look how strong the consumer is. You know, they're just spending money like crazy. They're spending money they don't have. And they've that bill comes due. And the bad thing is, and this is kind of like we talk about unproductive spending for the government because we spend money on things like sending checks to households, which has absolutely no multiplier effect in the economy. And then once the money's spent, you're left with the debt you have to pay off. Well, this is the same thing that's happening with households. They're spending money on consumables. They're not spending money on things that will produce an income for them later. They're spending money on gas and food and charging on their credit card. So that $10 steak or whatever they bought on their credit card, they're paying interest on that meal over the next 20 years that they're going to pay off that, that, that credit debit. And, and that's going to be one of the, the things that nag on consumers going forward is even as we come out of this cycle, consumers are now going to be more indebted. They're going to have more debt to pay. And if interest rates keep going up and as the Fed raises interest rates, those variable rates on credit cards are going to go up, that's even going to extract more capital from consumers that will have to be diverted to pay for debt rather than spending money in the economy to keep economic growth going. So from a demand destruction standpoint, you've just got a tremendous number of headwinds that are all kind of cold. You know, it's kind of like that movie, The Perfect Storm with George Clooney, where, you know, you have all these big major storms all colliding into one supercell. That's what you've got going on here. You've got this rising inflationary pressure. Wages aren't keeping up. Now you've got the Fed extracting liquidity and raising rates. You know, just everywhere you turn, there's a storm that's coming and they're all about to collide at the same time. And, and how we get out of this without having a recession uh, either later this year. And I see a lot of people right now are predicting, you know, early to mid 2023. I don't know how we get. Uh, it's possible. I'm just not sure how we get there without having a recession sooner. Without having one sooner, yeah. And, and we, as, as you and I have talked about, we, we, we could already be in one, right? And if you look at a lot of statistics, uh, several of which you just mentioned, they're classic recessionary uh, uh, statistics, like when personal spending slows, but um, uh, consumer debt balances increase. That's a clear sign right there. We already have negative Q1 GDP. The Q2 GDP right now is being estimated at less than 1% and declining. So we could have back-to-back -back negative uh, quarters, which would be a technical recession. Um, but I, I, the spirit of what you're saying is, is like, it, you don't see how we can get there, make it to the end of the year without a recession arriving, like in, in full force, or at least, you know, robust enough that we really notice it. I'm inclined to agree with you. I think taking the under bet on that is the wise uh, choice. Um, there was one storm cloud that you did not mention in your perfect storm, though, that is really worth talking about, which is layoffs, right? Yeah. So, you know, you were just saying, look, if we just continue at what we're at, where people are just putting more and more on their, their credit cards and getting more and more pinched, we still get to recession. But if people start losing their jobs again by the millions, that just compounds this thing to a whole new level, right? And I've talked a little bit on this program with you, I think, before, Lance, on some of the layoff tracking that I've been doing. And, you know, we are seeing a very notable uptick uh, in layoffs already. And of course, there's a progression that you go through. You know, companies don't want to fire right away, right? So they do a job freeze and then they start cutting hours and benefits and maybe they fire the contractors. 
and only then do they lay off. But we're already seeing a number of companies laying off there. And I just recorded a video really all about this perfect storm on the consumer household side that's going to be launching early next week. So I'll save going through the litany of, of data on that for, for that video. Um, but, 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 no, real quick, but, but real quick, I yeah. think that's an awesome point you know, because this is one reason the market sold off so hard on Thursday uh, was because that jobless claims number came in a lot higher than expected. And we actually broke above the 12 month moving average on jobless claims. Now that's a, you know, and this, you know, here's the, inter you know, the interesting thing about employment data is that record low unemployment or record low jobless claims are actually pre-recessionary. I know that's kind of hard to get your head around, right. But it's it's when you get to record lows of anything or record highs of anything, it's a record for a reason. There's only one way to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's exactly right. And you, and you pretty much run out of people to hire. But, you know, that jobless claims number is really interesting, uh, you know, to that point. And we are seeing, you know, a lot of indicators. I've got a report coming out next week on the website at realinvestmentadvice.com talking about the National Federation of Independent Business. Now, this is a survey that doesn't get a lot of attention from the mainstream media. They kind of mention it when it comes out and they say, oh, the NFIB survey was 93. Um, well, that's down from 108, uh, you know, at the peak of the market back in, in, in 20, uh, 2020. And that's a recessionary number just in the overall index. But forget the index, dig down into those, into the sub indexes of that report. And you start to see things like their economic outlook over the next six months is the lowest ever, ever recorded. And this thing goes back to like the 1960s. They've never been this bearish on their outlook. Now, if I'm a small business owner and I'm super bearish on the outlook for the economy, am I going out to hire a bunch of people? Don't think so. Am I gonna make a lot of CapEx investments? I don't think so. If I, am I gonna build up a lot of inventory? I don't think so. And that's exactly what every one of those indicators are telling you. They are pulling back um, from all of that. And look, small businesses make up about 60 to 70% of all your businesses in the country. They're a massive component of the, of the overall economy. So, you know, neglect. And again, I go through everything in this report that we'll have out next week, but it goes through all this stuff. And I mean, and it just tells you that there are problems coming sooner than later. And even the CEO uh, survey that just came out has plunged into recessionary territory as well. So again, to your point, just, you know, when it gets into the business hiring, you know, part of the economy, it doesn't look good. No, it doesn't. And so let's add to that another piece of data that came out today, right, which was the latest University of Michigan consumer confidence numbers, which are down at 50.2, which is the lowest. It, it was described in, in the articles I read as a record low, but looking at the data, which that I saw went back at least to the 80s, it's the lowest reading in the past 40 years, right, of the, of the, the full data set that they were showing, right? So just think about that for a second. Consumer confidence is lower today than it was at the depth of the pandemic when we were all thinking we were going to die and we put the entire world economy in, in lockdown, right? Yeah. Lower than the depths of the Great Recession, right? Lower than the depths of the dot-com crash, right? So, um, But, you know, it's an interesting point, though. It is. But why is it? That's the we, didn't, <laughs> we didn't have inflation in financial crisis time. We didn't have inflation during the pandemic. Nobody's dealt with this type of inflation before and in trying to make ends meet. That's why they're all pissed off. You know, I can just see the surveyors calling up people and it's like, uh, hey, Adam, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm with the University of Michigan. How are you feeling about the, the, the economy? Hey, F you. Right. <laughs> you know, right. but, but think That's about it. this. Like, 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 
this is happening. Yes, inflation's running really hot right now. Um, of course, we did have high inflation back at the, the end of the 70s and the early 80s, which the 70s weren't in the data set I looked at. Um, so I, I can't say for certain whether this is lower than that or not. But um, this is still happening with, even though initial jobless claims are coming up for the reasons that we think it should, we're still near record low unemployment, right? So imagine what this would be like in a year from now if prices haven't moderated all that much from where they are right now, cost of living still pretty high, but we have to contend with substantial layoffs, right? I mean, that, that, that is mind boggling that we're already as, starting from this point of already <laughs> ridiculous lowness. And I think to a certain extent, I was talking about this earlier in an interview that I just recorded with Stephanie Pomboy that'll release next week is, you know, like, how can we be here when versus some of those other dark times I mentioned? And, you know, Stephanie's mind was sort of like, the consumer has been getting letting been getting left further and further behind as the story's gone on, right? So, you know, coming out of the 2008 crisis as the markets recovered, right? Well, almost 90% of all financial assets are owned by the top 10% of households, right? So they didn't get to party that much and they saw the rich people getting a lot richer, right? Pretty much same thing happened on steroids after uh, we, we had the pandemic hit, right? Um, so it just sort of shows how, how, how thin the veneer of everything's okay is truly with the consumer. And now that things are really beginning to get real, right? Now that, the, the, that they're really beginning to have a contend with inflation and they're not getting any of the perks that the, the better off classes have been getting. It's revealing how, I, I think, I, I'm gonna use the word dangerously unhappy, a good chunk of society is here, right? I think there's a strong sense that, you know what? I've kind of been getting screwed by the system and maybe I was okay with it when you know you were giving me checks or there were enough job openings out there that I could get a job if I wanted to. But if that really flips into my house price has gone down, if I have any financial assets, they've gone down a lot. Holy crap, my job's just gone away. And oh my God, you know, food is 20% more expensive at the grocery store this year than last year. You know, I think people, there's a point at which you lose the confidence of the public. I'm not saying it's gonna happen tomorrow, but I'm saying that's the trajectory that we're on here. Well, look, I, you know, you you bring up a great point, and you know, this is and this is a critical thing when you're reading uh, headlines, and you know, there's a lot of guys that write you know articles and commentary and stuff out there, and you know, they're trying to put a bullish spin, you know, on things, and you'll hear this from from uh, you know the White House as well as like you know the the you know right now inflation's a, a Russia problem, but the household's very strong. You know, consumer spending is great. The, you know, the, the household balance sheet is very strong. It's not. And the reason is, is you brought this up, you know, if you take a look at things like household debt to income ratios, um, uh, savings ratios for households, the problem with all those, all those ratios is it's looking at the total of the asset, right? So it's looking at total debt versus total income or whatever it is. You've got to strip out that top 10% of income earners because it skews the data so much. And I've done this, I've done these charts before in the past. But if you look at the bottom 80% of their debt to income ratios, they are not in good shape. They are living paycheck to paycheck. They are barely making ends meet. And that was before all this went on. This was before you had inflation. It's gotten worse now. You know, you get in the top 5% of the population, the top 1% of the population, 
they've got plenty of excess savings. Inflation really doesn't matter to them very much. Yeah, maybe they'll they'll trim back and they won't buy caviar this month, right? So they'll just you know do something else. You know, I, I'm being a little bit facetious, but you get my point. If you've got lots of disposable cash and income and assets, inflation doesn't really mean a whole lot to you. Uh, maybe you don't fly the private jet twice this week. Maybe it's only once. Those are the decisions they're making at that level, right? But that's not the average way average people work. But they're in that ratio of disposable debt to income ratios, savings ratios. Those are the ones that have all the all the savings, and they're they're skewing that data. That the real household. And again, look, it's not. Forget that for a moment. Just take a look at some of the statistics we've seen. And Adam, you and I have talked about this. The average 401k balance is less than one year's salary. Only 25% of people in the economy actually contribute to a 401k plan. Um, the average American has less than $500 to meet an emergency. That's the real, and look, if I've only got $500 to meet an emergency, I guarantee you I don't have a healthy balance sheet at home, right? I mean, that's just, you can just, it just kind of makes sense. So, these changes to, and the point about this is these changes to inflation and what's happening with the cost of living is impacting that sentiment. And it's not surprising that with the rise in sentiment, you've seen a corresponding decline in presidential approval ratings. And, and look, it's not the president's fault that we have these things going on. That's just the guy in the office. He's the one that gets the blame. But Again, that's if you're taking a look at sentiment polls, whether it's the University of Michigan sentiment index or you're taking a look at presidential approval ratings or whatever thing that you're looking at relative to sentiment, they're all in the tank because people for the first time in a long time, and, and to your point, Adam, you know, they're upset. They're, they're, they're blaming capitalism, saying capitalism is broken. We need to do something else and we need to do socialism or communism. No, capitalism isn't broken. Um, you know, we've got problems that we've created in the capitalist system by doing things like bailing out the banks in, in 2008, doing you know round after round of quantitative easing and keeping interest rates at zero and not allowing the economy to function and do its Darwinistic job of capitalistic you know, reformation within the economy. Had you allowed recessions to occur, had you allowed these things to happen naturally without interference, the wealth distribution would not be like it is now. You wouldn't have had the market go up from, you know, 666 in, in 2009 to, you know, 40, you know, 4,800 earlier this year. We would have been around maybe 2,400, 2,500 on the S&P. Not nearly as fun, but, you know, you would have had a much more stable market, a much more stable economy, you know, but we've just done so many things to, you know, to warp, what happens at the upper end of these of these of this capitalist system and and we view capitalism through this lens of publicly traded companies and these CEOs right we we view capitalism as Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Jamie Dimon that's not capitalism that's warped capitalism that's corporatism caused by changes to compensation stock buybacks we've been through all this before but you know, if you take a look at capitalism in America, people going out to start a small business to feed their family, and you know, and they build an enterprise that creates for them, you know, two hundred fifty or three hundred thousand dollars a year of income. That's capitalism working. That's those small businesses we were talking about a minute ago that make up 70 percent of the economy. That's the backbone of America. That's the backbone of capitalism. That's not the representation of corporatism that we see going on right now. 
Sorry, got me off on a rant, but there you go. Yeah, no. So, all right. So I was going to try to segue into asking you about trades you've made this week, just so folks understand all that. But we're going to get that in a bit because you've gotten on a really rich vein here. Um, so uh, a couple of things. So first, uh, everything you just said about the consumer balance sheet. Um, I was just talking about this with Stephanie in my earlier interview with her today. You can say about the, the corporate balance sheet as well. It's the same deal. When they talk about corporate balance sheets being healthy, they are talking on average, right? And it's those massive companies, right? The Microsofts, the Apples, et cetera, that totally distort and skew that, right? So if you actually look at the bottom of 80% of corporate balance sheets, they're actually not doing very well at all either, right? So we kind of have this sort of like Potemkin economy right now, right? Where the veneer looks fine, but if you actually like, you know, look behind the set pieces, you realize, oh my gosh, this is, you know, largely kind of just fake here, right? Um, you also had a, I agree with everything you just said in your, your rant there about um, both the importance of capitalism, uh, specifically its Darwinistic cleansing function, um, and the fact that we really don't have, you know, true capitalism going on right now. And look, we could we could make in a whole interview or a whole series about that. Um, but you talked about, hey, you know, the, the small business is really the closest that we have here, the small business sector. You talk to a small business person and they'll tell you it's just getting harder and harder and harder to survive. Right. So not only do we have this sort of crony capitalism or corporatist capitalism where all the benefits are going uh, to the really big players who are super politically connected and whatnot, but they are then in turn through regulation, through, you know, desperate municipalities that are just trying to, you know, grab as many fees as they can from anybody who makes a dollar. We are just killing that core engine of capitalism right now. And the reason why all this is so important is kind of at the heart of what I think you were saying there, Lance, which is as people begin to, um, you know, sort of begin to feel like they're drowning financially, right? There's that saying that desperate people act desperately and you start reaching out to grab anything that you think could save you, even if it's not necessarily a great idea, right? And I think that's one reason why a lot of people are reaching for the allure of democratic socialism right now, especially you know younger uh, younger generations. And it's understandable. Look, your prospects are, are a lot worse off than generations before you. You didn't create this mess, but you're inheriting it. And you kind of feel like you're, you were born behind the eight ball. Hey, maybe you don't like any politician, but you're probably going to like the guy who's going to offer you something while you're getting screwed versus the guy who's going to screw you and not give you anything. Right. And, and the, da the danger here, and this is why I sort of, you know, was mentioning when I was talking about the sentiment of saying that we're kind of at this dangerous spot where I think the probability of us as a society making bad decisions is really getting higher. And of course, as you said, we're at this state right now where the system has been so deformed for so long that it's kind of beginning to topple under its own unsustainability. Um, it's bad decisions that got us here, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're gonna make good decisions to get out of this. Um, we may make desperate decisions as this thing begins to, to topple, which will make a bad situation even worse. So that's, I, I don't wanna paint the super doom and gloom picture, but like I, I do kind of spend a fair amount of time thinking about how things may get a lot worse before they get better, both because of the fundamental deterioration, but also the decision-making as bad as it's been may get a lot worse from well, And again, you know, it's unfortunate, you know, but, you know, there's, if you go back in history, I, I wrote an article uh, a while back. I mean, I'm probably going to have to do a revival of this article talking about the Titler cycle, um, which is a Scottish professor. And he went and examined, 
you know, societies throughout history and, and kind of the rise and fall and the sequences they, that they went through um, over a period of time. And if you go back in history and look, you know, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, the rise and fall of the Greek Empire, the rise and fall of the British Empire, every empire has ultimately failed. And the reason that they failed is, you know, they started in a cycle where they were very moral and you know, they were all working together. They were all pulling in the same direction and the society grew and they got wealthier. And then as they got wealthier, then they started, you know, making decisions to be, you know, quote unquote, more lazy, right? And now I can just pay other people to do stuff for me. I can outsource labor. I can do these other things. And so they were outsourcing labor, making other countries richer, making them stronger while they're getting weaker. And they began to take on debt to continue to outsource more labor so they could have you know, more time you know, to themselves. They moved away from that moral structure became more immoral. Of course, you know, you talk about the Roman orgies and these type of things, you know, but that's just the cycle of society. And as the rich get richer and they get, you know, more and more, I guess, bored, for lack of a better term, they keep moving away from what made them strong to begin with. And if you even take a look at America, you know, we're making those same decisions today, right? Where we we gone from we went from a country where we manufactured everything here back in the 40s, 50s, 60s nobody else could manufacture. We'd blown them all up during the war. So we had to, to, to rebuild these countries, but we were manufacturing. We were a very morally centered, very nuclear family oriented economy where we were all working. This is post-World War II. We're all pulling the sleigh together now and we're building this really strong capitalistic economy. And, and if you take a look at where we are now, we're now making these decisions that are not economically viable. You know, you and I talked about last week, if you wanna have a strong economy, have children. And right, and we're making these decisions that says, okay, you know, these alternative lifestyles are completely fine. You need to support them. You gotta be woke and all this. Economically, it's a terrible idea because we already have the lowest birth rate on record. That's gonna get worse. I just wrote an article, it's on our website today, talking about the $96 trillion graveyard called Social Security. And the, the whole problem with Social Security is a very simple process. Right now in Washington, they're talking about adding more people, giving more people access to Social Security. And this is what we've been doing since the 1960s, right? We keep adding more and more and more people to take money out of Social Security, but we don't have anybody paying into it. We had 49 people for every every person taking out of it when Social Security started. We're down to two contributors to every withdrawer today. And that's just going to continue to get worse because we're not having children. That birth rate in the economy is slowing. And if you don't have taxpayers, where do you think the money comes from? You can print up debt all day long, but somebody's got to pay for it. And that's the taxpayer. And at some point, if you run out of taxpayers, it's game over. That's it. You know, you don't, that's you're done. And that's how you, that's, this is how you end economies and, and how you end empires. And we're on that path. Now, this is something that, that Adam, I mean, I don't want to be doom and gloom like you. And, and this is not, this is nothing that's going to affect you or me or probably even our kids. Then, no, maybe not. Uh, <laughs> you're muted, by the way. Um, but, so I was just saying, don't throw me under the bus as the only doom and gloomer in this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, no, I'm just saying this won't affect, you know, this, these trends, these demographic trends are going to take, you know, 50, 100 years to fully play out. But we're on that trajectory. 
And it's not going to be us. It's not going to be our kids. It'll probably be our kids' kids or maybe the next generation after that. But all these decisions that we're making today that are, you know, economically non-efficient, to put it politely, it, it has serious consequences down the road. China's dealing with it now. That one child policy is right. kill, has killed them. Yeah, it created what's called a kite economy or kite demographics. Uh, you, yep. you ideally want a pyramid, right? Where you've got yep. a few old people supported by a bunch of young people. They're almost the opposite at this point in time. As Japan's the same way. Japan's the uh, same way. Yeah, yeah, 20% of their economy is over 65. So, I mean, which is a great way to say, look, if anyone's doubting what you're saying, we'll just go look at those economies, particularly the Japanese, and you can get a glimpse into our future, right? If, if, we, if we continue the trajectory that, that we're on here. Um, hey, real quick, I just wanted to, to read that Titler quote because um, I've referred to it a lot in the past. I think it's a great and very powerful uh, quote for all the reasons that you just said there, Lance. Um, so let me let me just pull it up here. Democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover they can vote themselves largesse out of the public treasure. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidate promising the most benefit from the public treasury, with the result that democracy always collapses over a loose fiscal policy, always to be followed by a dictatorship and then a monarchy. Um, I think folks hearing that, you know, whether you agree with it or not, you got to feel a little nervous that a lot of the, you know, signs of deterioration that he ticked off there, you can be like, okay, yep, all right, yep, loose fiscal policy, okay, yep, people wanting more out of the public treasury, okay, yep, right? So, um, you know, history is very important for all the reasons we mentioned, those that don't study it are forced to repeat it, all that good stuff. Um, and of course, all this comports with Neil Howe's fourth turning, you know, study of, of demographic cycles. And folks, if, if that term is new to you, uh, definitely watch this video here of the interview that I did with Neil Howe, where he goes through the whole framework of the fourth turning. Um, but it's it's similar to what Tytler said, as well as that that's more kind of common phrase of, oh, what is it? Uh, good men create good times. Um, good times create bad men. Uh, bad men create bad times, something like that. Um, where basically, basically because of the prosperity, you know, the, the next generation to come, you know, kind of takes it for granted. They become profligate, whatever. You get the Roman orgies you were talking about, and then you go in hard times, and then the cycle kind of repeats itself, right? And they get started with bad times create good men, good men create good times, et cetera, right? So, well, and, you know, and, and, and just to your point, though, and that's that, that's a great point. You know, uh, England, as an example, you know, went through the Victor you know, went through the dark ages, right? And then they came out of that again. And, and so the good side about this is that ultimately, you know, all this collapses and then we go, okay, that was a really bad idea. Let's start over. And we go back to our roots and we rebuild and we become strong again. And, and there is that cycle. So there is a, there is a, there is a silver lining to all of this, but you know, we can try to avoid that pain. And this is what we're doing with social security. We're trying to figure out all these ways to avoid the pain of what's got to happen to fix social security. But you can't avoid it. Eventually, you're, somebody's going to stand up and go, I'm sorry, we got to fix this. And this is the fix. And I know you're not going to like it. But everybody under the age of 35, you're going to pay into this thing, but you're never going to get a penny out of it. I'm just throwing out, you know, an example. But there's going to have to be pain paid to fix the problem. But nobody wants to do that because it's not electable. This is why MMT, modern monetary theory, which is neither modern monetary or theory, is so popular. Because it's exactly what you just talked about. 
with the cycle, which is people figured out how to vote themselves a paycheck out of government. That's all MMT is. Send people, send money to people, spend money and all this stuff. It's all debt. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it matters. Debt matters because taxpayers have to pay for it. And it's a, and when taxpayers have to pay for that debt, it extracts capital from their ability to consume in the economy. And 70% of our economy is consumption. It's just math, people. <laughs> well, it, that, that, so MMT, great example, right? It, it's the modern incarnation of the age old, you know, voting yourself largesse from the treasury that Tyler talked about, right? So, I mean, all these things are part of the human cycle. We always think they're new and we're the generation that's living through them. But this has all happened before, right? So you talk about, look, the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel in the story is once the unsustainable system corrects, then you get a chance to kind of you know rebuild better from the ashes, right? I want to bring this back to you know the main reason why folks are watching this video. And sorry, folks, that we, we, we got away from the market stuff here, but this is all really important because, Lance, you know, you and I have had a little bit of the debate of like, or the discussion of, you know, hey, if we were made, you know, emperor for a day, what would we do? And I think we would both say, fine, let's just let the system, let's let natural forces take over. Deflation just craters everything. It gets all the malinvestment out of the system. All the bad debts go bad, right? Insanely painful. No doubt about that. But it should hopefully be swift, you know, violent, but swift, right? And then get us to that point where we can say, okay, the correction phase is over let's rebuild from a much more sustainable standpoint. Like you said, though, I think most of the status quo is going to do everything in its power uh, to prevent that, certainly the entire political machine, because no politician wants to preside over that, right? So we are going to go kicking and screaming through that process. So how long will it take? I don't know. Maybe we're still going to measure it in decades, right? So it's like, sadly, we might not get to that better tomorrow, you know, for society soon. But we do have markets that are going through a corrective phase right now. And, you know, in, within the grand cycle of things, there are lots of little cycles. So the big question right now for most you know, people who are managing money today is, OK, when is this next correction cycle? Like, how long is this correction cycle likely to take when I can then be positioned to you know, catch the next uh, up part of it? You know, once once the, the current you know, biggest uh, malinvestment has been corrected. Um, you and I have talked a bit about bear markets. If this is indeed a bear market, and we're pretty close to it again now, I think the S&P is down a little over 18%, 20% being the official, and I know you don't like that term. Um, but bear markets don't end until everybody is just completely done with investing, right? And we still are nowhere near that stage, correct? No, it's really interesting. I just wrote an article about this uh, earlier this week, and... You know, it's kind of an article. I kind of threw it together. I needed to write something, and I had other stuff going on. I kind of threw this article, and it actually, it, it actually got a, took off and kind of did a, had a really good run with it. But it, it was called, "If Investors Are So Scared, Why Is Anybody Selling?" And you know, it, it's it's a re, it's interesting because you look at sentiment, right? You take a look at the American Association of Individual Investors, the Institutional Investor Sentiment Index, the National Association of Investment Managers. You know they're all very bearish, right? The sentiment's terrible. It's like, I hate this market. You know, it's a bear market. I'm scared to death, but I'm not selling anything. And, you know, investor allocations are still all time near all-time highs. They barely come off despite the decline. And, and this massive fear in the market, you would have expected that 
people would be, you know, have 40, 50, 60% cash in portfolios. They don't. They have near record low levels of cash. They have near record low levels of bonds. Still very long equity. And, and, and it's such a function of the, fun, of the fact that we've taught people over the last decade, oh my God, don't sell because at any point the Fed's going to come in here and bail you out and then you're going to miss it and you're not going to be in. So you can't sell. And, and this is all this passive indexing thing as well. But to your point, I'm still getting way too many emails. And, and this is a daily thing. I'm getting way too many emails every day saying, Lance, just tell me when the bottom is so I can go buy everything. I've got my whole shopping list ready. We're nowhere near a bear market because that, that doesn't happen. As you said, you know, when you get to a real, real bear market bottom, wherever that is, everybody's going to be saying, buy stocks. Are you crazy? This is right. just stupid to buy stocks. And there's a lot of stocks out there that are, that are at that level. But yeah, just sentiment wise, you know, until we see investor allocations come down, I just don't see how we get, you know, we're finished with this bear market just yet. Could be wrong. Look, markets can do anything. And, and one thing is true, Adam, if the Fed tomorrow came out and said, screw it, you know, we're just, we're going to drop rates back to zero and, and, and we're going to stop QT and go back to QE, this market's going to take off running. So, you know, that's because we, that's what we, it's, you know, the market's now like Pavlov's dogs. All we're doing is waiting for Pavlov to ring the bell. That's it. And, you know, and at that point, you know, markets will perform better. It doesn't mean that, you know, going forward, we're going to continue to have this rip roaring bull market. There's lots of other, you know, issues that markets have. And every cycle of QE is requiring a bigger and bigger cycle of QE in order to get kind of the same rate of return out of the market. So you're getting this uh, this efficacy of these programs is becoming less and less each iteration that we do of them. So zero interest rates and 200 billion in QE the next time around. Uh, you know, negative rates and 400 billion after that. No, I don't know what the, what the end game of this is, but if you want to keep pumping these markets up and keeping the cycle going, you know, it's going to take more and more support to make that happen. Right. Uh, totally true. What's interesting, though, is, you know, the, so that's the big question, right? The Fed pivot. When does the Fed come in and, and does it go absolutely bonkers in terms bonkers. of the magnitude of what it's going to do? Right. But what's going to prevent the Fed from doing that is persistent hot inflation above, you know, 8%, right? And the inflation rate just went up today, as we talked about here, right? So we can't predict what the Fed's going to do with any certainty. We can only guess, right? But the odds of it pivoting near term have just gone down based upon today's data, right? So um, uh, one, you know, so if you're, if you're waiting for the Fed to come in and ride to the rescue, you just got an indicator today that it's, it's, it, it's not going to be immediate, right? And you know, you were saying something I think is important here, which is that um, humans are social animals, right? We're, we're, we're herd based, right? And there's famous, you know, studies over centuries, the madness of crowds, you know, people go, was that people go mad as a crowd and, and insane one at a time or something like that. I'm murdering the quote, but we, 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 we our behavior tends to be influenced by those around us, right? And so, you know, sentiment really matters because that's what the herd is thinking at any given time. And if you look at a herd, if a herd starts getting nervous, it's not one cow leaves and then two cow leaves and then four cow leaves and it's a dribble. It's the herd 
starts getting nervous. They, they crunch a little bit closer together. You know, maybe some, maybe a cow thought it saw, you know, a predator out there, but they get more and more nervous, but they don't go anywhere. Right. And the nervousness builds and builds and builds and builds, but the herd doesn't move. And then it gets to a point where one cow bolts and then they all go. Right. And, you know, essentially what I hear you saying is, is the herd is not at that stage yet. The herd has not moved. And so, yes, we could have one of these face ripper bear market rallies that you and I have been warning people about. But there is potentially a growing risk here as we continue to see, you know, weeks in the market like we just had this week where if the herd gets spooked, like if you think down 18% in the S&P so far this year is bad, we could go down another 10% like that if and when we get to that trigger point where sentiment shifts from positive, you know, net bullish to net bearish, right? You know, and that's actually, and that actually applies to a couple of other things as well. Inflation is that way. If you take a look at historical rates of inflation, go back to 1960 and run a chart of CPI. What happens with CPI is, is CPI doesn't spike up. And, and again, there's been plenty of periods throughout history where we've had inflation spike up. And sometimes it went from you know 1%, spiked up to 3% pretty quick or whatever. But it doesn't go up and then just kind of trend sideways for a while and then start to kind of dribble off. It's up and it's down very yeah, quickly it's, it's because spiky. it's very spiky. And the other side of that is that also... Um, energy prices are exactly the same way. Energy prices spike up, and then when they break, they come down very sharply. And the reason for that, for both of those, is because of that same herd mentality. When the consumer finally gets broken by inflation, they stop. You have a recession, and inflation comes down because they stop spending, and, and you have this immediate contraction of, of consumption. Oil prices are all driven by commodity traders. So, you know, oil prices are, are somewhat supply and demand driven, but a lot of it is these non-commercial uh, speculators in the options markets that are driving oil prices through options contracts. And so when, and right now, everybody's ramping up their oil contracts. You take a look at, <laughs> at, at futures on contracts. Everybody's being long oil, right? The oil's going to 300, whatever it is. Well, at some point, somebody says, I'm out. And when that guy goes out, whoever that guy is, He's like the popular guy that brings all the people to a party. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, whoever that guy is, when he says, I'm out, the rest of the herd follows him. And that's why oil prices don't dribble down. They go straight down. And okay. this one we keep talking about, take some profits out of energy stocks because you'll wake up one morning and be down 20% before you know it. All right. So great point. I just want to share something really interesting with you. So I think I mentioned I interviewed Art Berman, who's an oil expert. That interview is coming out early next week. Um, so Art, and you'll see in the video, you know, he goes through just an unbelievable amount of data uh, to explain what's going on with oil prices. Uh, so he's very, very empirical guy, engineer, you know, petroleum engineer, um, you know, very data-driven analyst. Um, when we finished recording the video and we were just chatting afterwards, he was telling me that he's been reading Young, Carl Young recently, because he said in his 40 years of experience in the oil industry, psychology had the greatest explanatory uh, value in terms of what was happening with prices. He said, I can, I can track the fundamentals all day long, but if I'm really being honest, it's human psychology that explains way more of what's going on with prices than all the fundamentals do. So yep. very no, much exactly, exactly what you're saying. It is. And, and, and we have to remember that about markets and how they work because 
it is about psychology. It is about the herd. The, you know, the market is a market and it is buyer. It's a, it's a big wad of buyers over here and a big wad of sellers over here. And those sellers are selling stuff at buyers and buyers are going, yeah, I'll buy it at this price. And sellers are going, okay, if you'll buy it at that price, we buy it at this price. And they say, yeah, I'll buy it here. So prices go up. Same thing happens in reverse. When the sellers outweigh the buyers, that's why prices decline because mm -hmm. sellers are going, hey, I'm out. And buyers are going, hey, I'm down here. I'll buy it here. And so prices come down, just like you saw today. Prices came down and buyers started kind of buying about 10 o'clock this morning and kind of prices stabilized, you know, for, for the bottom of the day. But we kind of just hung around those lows kind of all day long today. There was some buyers sitting there willing to take stocks off of weak players today. All right. Well, look, let's let's toss the viewers a, a stake here. So, um, you know, let's get to the market action just real quick, because I do have two other quick topics I want to ask you before we wrap up. Um, but definitely not, you know, if, if you're long, not, not a great week for the markets. The past two days have been not fun at all, I imagine. So can you give just a quick recap of what you think drove the market this week, as well as any trades that you guys may have made? Sure. So really, so every day on our website, we put out both daily commentary uh, on our website, uh, which has a market trading chart in it. And we also produce a three minute video every day talking about basically what, what's going on in the market and, and, and what we're doing. So, you know, all week long, the message was pretty, was pretty much the same as like, we're trapped within this very defined trading range. The market was just running up to the top of where we were last week. And then we come down and test the lows from last week. And so it was this very tight trading range we were just bouncing around in. Well, at the same time, we were bouncing around in that trading range the downtrend line from, from earlier this year was encroaching at the top of that trading range and was starting to push it down. And so our concern was that we said, look, if this thing breaks to the downside, which is becoming a more likely probability, you know, that's going to have a very sharp decline fairly quickly because everybody's been hovering in this little trading range, hoping for this rally to kind of extend itself a bit. Well, we broke to the bottom of that. And as soon as we broke, it was like somebody opened a floodgate and everybody ran out. So, you know, we were concerned about that. So earlier this week, you know, we raised some more cash. We added a short S&P 500 uh, ETF to our portfolio because we were worried about this break to the downside. And, and so that occurred. So, you know, we've got a little bit more kind of coverage here. And I think that Monday or Tuesday wouldn't be surprising to see this market bounce a bit um, only because... You, you, you wiped out a bunch of gains in like two days and we're coming back to retest those lows from, uh, from uh, May. And I think you can see a little bounce here, but any bounce you get, if we get a day where we're up one or 2% in the markets, I would sell that bounce and add to a short because I, I think at this point now, we're gonna start working our way a little bit lower here over the next, you know, potentially month or so. Okay, and, and I do wanna give you credit that for two months or so now, or at least a little over a month, you've been saying, hey, now that we're seeing this bounce, this is a this is a rally to sell into. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like that's proving to have been the right call here. Um, sounds like if it's you know, offering similar advice, if indeed we, we get another bounce next week. Yep. Um, so I, I've also read that um, June options expiry is next week, next Friday, and that we talked last month because there was a pretty abnormally large one I've been reading that this one coming up is even bigger. Um, is that is that impacting any of what's going on right now? Do you think, or is it is it separate? I, got, I, I don't think. Uh, well, some of it could be. So, 
when, so every every month we have options expire. This one's coming up as $3.2 trillion. I think when we had back in March, February or March, I can't remember now, was 3.8. Um, those are the two largest I can remember seeing anytime recently in trading history. I mean, we've had some large ones before, but these are really big. And that's because all these retail traders and everybody else have, have all been trading options and buying put options on markets and all this. Um, the the problem is is that in order so if I'm if I'm the one you know making the contracts I'm I'm the the I'm I'm making the options so that you can buy it well if I'm you know creating a put option or a call option I've got to buy or sell that underlying stock on that option so as the as the market maker somebody's got to reposition going into next Friday as that option expires they either have to sell or buy to rewrite contracts. For the next site for the next month going out until the next options. So what, you know, and, and where we're currently positioned, you know, there's there's one guarantee that's likely to happen by next Friday is a lot of volatility next week. I would not be surprised to see this market jump around a good bit next week. We've also got the Fed on Wednesday. They'll be hiking 50 basis points. There is a rising potential. They could do 75 basis points. Personally, I don't think they will. I don't think they want to spook the markets right now. I think they want to try to get off a 50 basis point hike this time and then, you know, two more probably by September and try to get that rate up to two, two and a quarter at least on the Fed funds rate. So they have some room to operate if we do get into a recession. They're not stupid. They know a recession's coming. Uh, so I think they want to be positioned for that. So I don't think they want to do anything to spook the market. Um, so I think they'll do 50. My, just my guess, I could be wrong. But because of that, and then, you know, if they come out and they're potentially a little bit dovish in their stance, whatever, maybe we get a little market rally, you know, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, but Friday, you could see a lot of volatility. Like it could be one of those markets where we open down in the morning and finish up in the afternoon or open up in the morning and then get wiped out late afternoon. You never know how these options expiration are going to play out. So it's better to not try to guess it. Um, you know, I'd go into that with a little bit more cash and maybe a bit of a hedge. Okay. All right. Great. All right. Well, look, we got to start wrapping things up here. Um, Lance, there's two things I'd like to ask you about. We, we don't have time, I think, to do one of them true justice, but I do want to let you say whatever you want to say about it at a high level. Maybe we make a, a, a deeper dive in next week's video. Um, but that's uh, some new decisions coming out of the SEC that are going to impact the way in which our markets function and maybe actually kind of clean them up a little bit. Yeah. Um, just just two things real quick on that. And yeah, let's save this for next week because this is a 30-minute rant all by itself. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, um, you know, the S uh, Gary Gensler, who is the uh, chairman of the SEC, came out this week. And in a nutshell, he's directed the SEC to start figuring out ways to make the market more fair. Good job. Um, needs to have been done for a long time. But one thing he's talking about in particular is moving the market to an auction-based market. So orders would go into an auction pool and then everybody would bid on the execution of the order. That's awesome, right? Because what that does is that provides the best bid and offer to the investor. So you get the best price. What it kills is payment for order flow, which means the value of Robinhood is exactly zero if that rule goes through, because any company that survives on payment for order flow, they're going to be out of business. And then very interesting sideline to this is that in 2004, a lawyer wrote an article, wrote a letter to the SEC saying 
that payment for order flow is, is a predatory practice on investors and should be banned. That was in 2004. So now they're talking about it in 2022 and the largest player in payment for order flow is Citadel Securities who paid Robinhood $100 million, uh, I think in 2020 or 2021 for the orders that they got. Now, if, if Citadel is willing to pay Robinhood $100 million, that means Citadel's making money on those trades, which means that free isn't free. You're just paying for it in a different form by getting worse execution. But the interesting thing about it is, is that lawyer that wrote the letter to the SEC in 2004 suggesting that the SEC ban payment for order flow was the lawyer for Citadel Securities. Just to let you know. So again, you know, I, I think this is this is a great conversation. I'm actually writing an article on this. Um, I'll have it up maybe by next week as well. Um, I'm not sure where it's in my stack of stuff I've been writing lately to get out because there's so much stuff going on. Um, but definitely next week, let's talk more in depth about it because it, it means a lot for retail investors. And it's in, and, and it, it would be great if it happened because it would level the playing field for the average investor. It will never happen because uh, Chairman uh, Gary Gensler for the SEC is a political appointee and the people that write the checks to keep people in political power mostly come from Wall Street. So right. we'll, get, we'll get him yanked. Yeah. And, yeah. and I've been talking with uh, uh, markets expert, uh, expert in the plumbing of how our markets work. Um, uh, uh, Joe Saluzzi uh, from Themis Trading, um, who's actually gone and testified in front of Congress on a lot of these things. Um, and uh, it's a really fascinating world. If you ever read the book Flash Boys by Michael Lewis, you, you have a sense of, of the intrigue in the incredibly hugely financed arm, arms race that's going on on Wall Street in this invisible world you'd understand where things happen in milliseconds. Um, but there's a ton, a ton of money being made by the entrenched players like Citadel in this space right now. So the point is, is, is let's all hope for the wheels of justice to do the right things here. But you know, you already showed how slowly they've been moving on this topic already. Um, we should probably expect it to continue to move slowly. But anyways, when you get that piece written, Lance, let's have you come on and really delve deeply into that because because it really could be a, a rare and, and very important, you know, positive move if it actually gets implemented. Um, all right. So the other topic I want to talk to you about, I think we'll probably save this one to go deeper into at another time, too. But uh, I wanted just to get a little bit of a fun rant on with you. Did you see the article this week about um, Geico losing a lawsuit because a woman had sex in a car? and caught an STD from the man that she had sex with in the car and was basically able to sue the car insurance, the auto insurer, for the damages that she received from getting the disease, right? Well, you know, this, this is why we have, you know, disclaimers on hair dryers that says do not use in the shower and, you know, warnings on coffee cups that says hot liquid inside right, because right. people file these ridiculous lawsuits. And so it requires future disclaimers that says, by the way, your insurance on your automobile does not cover sexually transmitted diseases. Yeah. So what's crazy. About, I mean, yes, you're right. This is why we can't have nice things as a public. Right. Um, yes. And what struck me on this is this opens a crazy door, which is like, Anybody who feels aggrieved about anything that has ever happened to them can sue 
the, the, the homeowner's insurance can sue, the commercial property insurance can sue, the, the auto insurance um, for anything, right? Oh, you said something to me that, that mentally damaged me. It was a microaggression that then caused me to not want to go forth and, and pursue my potential. And therefore, my losses from not doing that are 50 million and you owe me, right? So um, it, it, is, it is interesting to me that a big insurer like Geico just lost this case. Now, will this thing get thrown out? Will the outcome just be another rider in your auto insurance? Who knows? But where I'm going with this is that um, even big players like Geico, right? It's a Warren Buffett portfolio company. It's a massive company. It still lost this case. It's having to pay like $6 million to this woman. Um, and it underscores the fact that just, you know, we, we live our lives and we should live our lives not worrying about every single step we take. But there is a risk out there of sort of frivolous lawsuits or, or not even frivolous lawsuits, an unexpected lawsuit, whether it be frivolous or due to an accident that you just you, know, you had because it was an accident. Um, and I know that, Lance, you're in the space of dealing with people who all of a sudden get hit out of nowhere with a lawsuit and the impact that it has on their wealth. Um, I'm a big fan of umbrella insurance. I don't necessarily think we've got time to kind of go into that yet, but I think that's one of the best values out there right now that gives a fair amount of protection to some of this stuff that most regular people don't even understand. They don't understand what it is and they don't understand how cheap it is. But anyways, without going into the details there, is there anything you want to say about this topic as we earmark it to, to go deeper on on a later date? No, there's there's definitely, you know, and it, it, it goes to show you two things. One is that what's wrong with our, you know, what's wrong with the judges? You know, and this is, you know, really disappointed in a lot of things I've been hearing come out of judges as of late. You know, they have no backbone. And again, if I'm the judge on this case, I'm like, get the hell out of my, quit yeah. taking up. Quit taking up my time and taxpayer money with this stupid case. This is frivolous. Get out of here. And about five years ago in Texas, we used to have the ability in Texas to, to, to basically rebut a claim that was frivolous with a countersuit to sue for a frivolous claim. So if you made a frivolous claim against me, I could, I could sue you back for making a frivolous claim. They call this the Johnny Depp approach now, but go ahead. Pretty much, yeah. Um, but you know they've thrown that out in Texas, and that got that got overturned about five years ago. So now I can sue you for anything. I can just make crap up and sue you, and then you've got to go through all the legal expense and everything else. And this is why I know I'm a huge fan of umbrella insurance. Um, me personally, I'm in a sue happy business because I'm in the financial advisory business. People can sue you for anything. Um, so I have money and annuity. They're judgment proof. They are, you know, uh, you know, provide tax deferred growth, but they are they are basically, you know, shield assets against judgments and against lawsuits if one of those occurs. So if you're in a high risk business, we've talked about this before. There's things you can do to protect money. Whole life insurance policies that grow tax free have tax free withdrawals. They're judgment proof. Annuities, if they're structured right. Uh, you know, judgment proof, setting up a trust, separating your assets. If you if you have a bunch of rental houses, those should all be in separate LLCs and not in your name. Uh, somebody walks out to the house, they like they like the house, it's like, oh, pretty house, and they fall off the front steps and they crack an ankle, then they sue you, right? You know, and, and the next thing you know, you've lost your house. So, you know, those things happen. You know, it's like, oh, that happens to other people. No, it happens all the time. And you know, it, very simple things that you can do to shield yourself against lawsuits and judgments and bankruptcies and these type of things, but you just need to, to go through the process of thinking about it, preparing it, and, and we can certainly spend you know an entire show, you know, going over this type of stuff. 
I mean, I, I would kind of like to, because I think, you know, a big part of what we're doing right now, right, is we're warning people about the macro risks that are coming and trying to get them to take prudent steps beforehand. Yeah. I think you know, we talk about a lot of like hedges, we refer to them as the type of insurance and whatnot. I think insurance is also just something that people need to probably do an audit right now and say, do I have enough protection, you know, against my wealth right now? So let, let me, uh, we'll do this. We'll put it to a poll here, folks. If you're watching and you'd like to see us do this, let us know in the comments section below if there is more interest or enough interest that Lance and I will dive more deeply into this going forward. Yeah. Um, just in case we don't, I do want to just share one little tidbit. Um, so, and I said, I'm a big fan of umbrella insurance. Um, even if you don't know what it is, folks, just remember this one thing. The, they say that the time in life where it's most important to have it is when you have a teen driver in the household. And I say this as my 15 year old is got her permit right now and working towards getting her license when she turned 16 in a couple of months. Yeah, sure. There's a number of parents watching this. Um, it's a, it's a, for no other reason, go research umbrella insurance for that reason alone. Um, all right, Lance. Well, look, we made it to the end of another great week. Um, folks, if you um, a enjoy this conversation, you'll like these weekly market recaps that Lance and I do, please do me a favor, support this channel by hitting the like button if you haven't already, and then clicking on the red subscribe button, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Um, if you don't already know this, um, we highly recommend, given all the storm clouds of the perfect storm that Lance and I were talking about, recommend that you work with a professional financial advisor to develop a plan for how you're going to manage your portfolio for what's coming ahead. If you have a good advisor to do that with, great, stick with them. But if you don't, or if you'd like a second opinion from a knowledgeable advisor like Lance, even Lance specifically, uh, you can go request one for free. There's don't cost you anything. There's no strings attached. There's no commitment to work with these guys. Uh, they'll just sit down and talk with you as a public service. Go to Wealthion.com and schedule one of those uh, those uh, initial consultations. Um, Lance, with that being said, it, things are getting really interesting right now. Whatever the markets do between now and next Friday, you and I will be recapping it here next week. You got it. See you then. All right. Thanks for watching, everybody.